You are now listening to The Secret Life of a Grad Student. I'm Megan. I'm Laura, and we are two grad students who want to share the untold stories of graduate students past and present. Perfect. So we are now recording. I'm Megan Garber. I'm Leno Kiefer Curran. Jamie Meadows. I'm Timothy Poiseau. I'm Audrey Bescul. Thank you guys for coming today. We had you already all in individually to talk about your personal relationship with your imposter syndrome. Today, it's a bit about debating about that. And the first question would be, what you think are the pros and cons of imposter syndrome? And maybe we can start with uh, Audrey. It may sound redundant with the, the chat that we had the other day. So I think mainly what I was saying was, for me, the imposter syndrome, I think on the pro side, I think it really keeps me on my toes because because of the fact that I'm second guessing uh, myself and because I feel like I don't belong and I think it pushes me to work even harder. So it also brings the con side where it's really hard to find, I would say, a work-life balance because it's just, I feel like I don't belong and so I have to work twice as hard as everybody else. And so I think it's kind of the con side. Always associated with a with the feeling of stepping out of my comfort zone and that's where it's it's usually triggered and so it kind of makes me reluctant to stepping out of my comfort zone so I think that would be another cons although I tried to overcome that feeling so what do you think about it Timothy I tend to agree one of the pros of imposter syndrome is that I, I tend to double check and then triple check everything that I do it shows me to catch a few mistakes before I before I make them which is good so it's not to say that it's a, it's a good thing to, to suffer from imposter syndrome, but it, you can use it in a way that is positive. And I read somewhere that it was, so usually perfectionist, and I don't know, like I don't want to be in the generalization of thoughts and, or anything like that, but I was reading that it was usually linked with like a sort of like a perfectionism. And I don't know, Tim, if you're, if you're saying that because you feel like you're a perfectionist and maybe sometimes you're confusing like having the imposter syndrome with like symptoms of just being a perfectionist. I mean, I don't know where the boundary is, but I don't know if you feel like it's really, and I don't know, if Jamie, if you're more on the perfectionist side rather than what the other side could be. But I feel like it's, it's kind of like an inherent um, or it's highly correlated, right? Between yeah, I mean, I agree with both of you. I think I tend to be more Audrey side and thinking that it kind of keeps me in check that when I do have these feelings, the con, you know, is that it tends to be anxiety, right? You get like very anxious about being maybe in that meeting or in room or with other people because you just feel that maybe you're not up to standard or up to par or maybe know as much as the other people. So that's kind of like the con feeling, right? Is this, this anxiety of do I belong? And I think the pro is that it, in some ways it kind of grounds you, right? It kind of keeps you level headed headed and when you're thinking and being because you do have those feelings you know you you kind of start to almost like at least for me like talk myself up and I'll be like yeah you got this like you can do this you're you're smart enough you know enough information and then kind of on Timothy's side like if I feel that I don't I will do some of that like extra research just to kind of put myself in check yeah for me it's more the anxiety the imposter syndrome just causes a lot of anxiety for me I just feel like I just feel like I don't belong so I I think I, I tend a little bit more towards Timothy's kind of forces me to double check and triple 
triple check and quadruple check all of my work, make sure that I'm right, because I'm afraid I have this fear of submitting a paper and it eventually coming back and being completely incorrect. Mm -hmm. Someone telling me like, you know, you have no business doing this work. You don't know what you're doing. Definitely that kicks in for those kind of big events. Like when you request a grant or when you are submitting a paper, you put yourself out there. You're very vulnerable. And this is when your imposter syndrome is like screaming at you. You're not good enough for that. And you're just waiting for somebody to let you know that. And then, but eventually we are all there. We are all doing science. So, and we are not giving up. My, my cons clearly is like not belonging like strongly, but the pros for me, it's, it's that every time that I feel that is that I go outside of my comfort zone and that's checking that I'm still challenging myself. And if I don't hear my imposter syndrome, I'm like, am I so comfortable right now in my comfort zone that so I feel like an expert of what I'm doing when I feel that way I'm like okay maybe it's a time to challenge yourself so for that it's a pro aspect of having your imposter syndrome because if it's here to tell you that you don't belong or you're not good enough I think it's just telling you that you're in a good direction at least this is how I'm trying to <laughs> perceive it <laughs> like it has this froze right <laughs> it must have <laughs> If you were to advise somebody on dealing with imposter syndrome, what would you tell them? I've definitely had different times in my life where my friends have felt, you know, this imposter syndrome 100%. And my advice to them and kind of how I help them through it is kind of how it works for me is kind of just being like their biggest cheerleader and letting them know that they are smart enough, like they're there for a reason, right? Sometimes it's, you know, they got a new faculty position and they're going to be a professor, which you know, we're all academics. We know that that's for some people like the gold standard and like, <laughs> oh my God, I got here. You know, it is congratulations to anyone because it's a really hard position to get. So I think like I've had friends who have gotten into those positions and then kind of freak out in their thinking being like, well, do I really belong here? Like, am I smart enough to be a professor? Can I, can I run my own research? Can I write my own grants? For them, I just kind of always remind them that you've already been running your own research. You've been writing grants. Like you are totally capable of this. And I've had friends in other positions and it's, it's pretty much always the same thing, right? Reminding them that they are smart enough and that they are great and they're going to do a good job at it. You know, they're not going to know everything because no one ever does, but you got this. So basically kind of kind of- you say reminding them evidence of their success in the past to justify their new step into their career. Yes. Like, yeah. you know, they were picked to, you know, for that promotion or whatever they're doing or why they're feeling that way. Right. Like they're there for a reason. Like they are capable of this kind of reminding them of that. Timothy, what about for you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've had to advise more than a few people. Uh, we had very open discussion about imposter syndrome. I think it depends a lot on the causes of, of why we feel imposter syndrome. If it's, you know, having some doubts in your own abilities as a scientist, it's sort of easier to advise because you can remind these people of the fact that they're here for a reason, the fact that they've had previous scientific accomplishments and sort of try to decompose the task into things that seem more manageable. I feel that it's slightly easier to manage that. One of the other main causes of imposter syndrome, which is no one in academia looks like me or no one in academia has the same background that, that I have. Uh, which are also discussions I've had with, with some students, and that's a lot more difficult to, to advise. Some people can feel imposter syndrome not because they're not confident in their own scientific abilities, but because they don't recognize themselves uh, in, in other academics that they've met. You know, white male, I'm, I'm not really necessarily the best person to have a, a deep experience 
on what that feels like. And that is much more difficult to advise people in these situations. Timothy, your answer makes me want to ask your question to Jamie. And Audrey, we will get back to you. Jamie, you had a career switch. Yeah. So um, like you said, so I used to be a bench scientist. So I postdoced with Laura and Megan. That's how I know you guys. And I recently joined the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And I'm a science technology policy fellow. So it's a way to do public service work. You get matched up with a government agency. I'm at the Department of Energy and I work in the Bioenergy Technologies office. So for me, it's a completely different switch, right? Like I'm not doing bench work. I'm not using like that part of my training and something that I was doing for 15 or so years, maybe more, I don't want to say. For a long time, that's what I was doing. And I was comfortable in that. And, you know, one of those situations where you can walk in and you at least have an idea of what you're doing. This new switch for me, I definitely felt this imposter syndrome because you kind of feel, do I really belong here? Like my bench skills do not translate, but your knowledge and your way of thinking does, right? So like a lot of a PhD is how you think about things and how you approach problems. So I just kept trying to tell myself, to fall back on those strengths and and use those to get myself through. But talking to other fellows, a lot of people feel the same way because it is such a stark shift from what we were doing. And I think for me, talking to other fellows kind of helped alleviate that feeling of, you know, feeling like a fraud or why am I here or why did they choose me? I suppose it's a little different in that you can't just, your friends can't say to you like, you know how to pipette, you got this. You're, <laughs> you're, not, you're not doing that anymore. But you know, they, they point out your other skills and I think you have to draw upon that and kind of reflect inward and then kind of go from there. So I think in the way that I see imposter syndrome is more like the way that you're, I don't know, a certain mechanism in your brain that makes you like totally forget the facts and all of your accomplishments and just focuses on what you may have not done and you feel you should have done or the experience that you should have and you don't have. And and so it's just like focusing on the on the negative and, and totally being forgetting about all of your achievements. And I think it's easier in my case to help people that I really know, because I can just go back to all of the facts and remind them like, hey, you did this and that here. And remember that one time when we were on the phone and you told me that you submitted that paper and then it just took you like eight months to submit that paper and so on and so forth. I think it's much easier to help people that you know, because it's easier to go through the list of all of their accomplishments and, and remind them and kind of like keeps them grounded to the facts rather than the interpretation, the bias. And so it happened to me even and so I'm not like in science, right? I'm more in engineering. And so it happened to me, boss, she didn't say, hey, I have the imposter syndrome. What do you think? She went to me to ask for advice. And so I had to remind her, and I think she was trying to find like a confidence boost. And I had to remind her all of the things she did with the company <laughs> and that were just amazing. I was like, this is obvious. The reason why he's coming to you are for all of those reasons. And I had to walk her through all of the things that she accomplished at the company <laughs> and say like, here you go. That's the reason why he wants you in that position. It reassured me. And I was like, oh my God, like if you're at that position and you still suffer from the imposter syndrome, then, you know, it happens to every one of us and yeah. it will never stop. And at the same time, I was just like, this is, it was, yeah. So it's, it's guiding these people through the list of accomplishments. And I think it's really hard when you don't really know the person that you're trying to support. And uh, so anyway, it's kind of people grounded to the facts rather than just like an interpretation of some reality that they had in their head. Um, I think Audrey brought up a good point was that I think one thing like when you're talking to someone and I think you kind of hit, you know, the nail right on the head is that in the person's mind, they have this alternate almost reality of what they're thinking they're going into or what they're in. And it's kind of just bringing them back down and 
in reassuring them. What would be the best way to prevent people from feeling overwhelmed? It sounds lame, but I think it's just calming yourself down physically sometimes. Yeah. Right? Taking a slow breath, just bringing yourself back down or other people to try to not get that heart racing, anxious feeling, right? Um, Because it is a physical response to how you're mentally thinking. So I think sometimes for me, if I can calm my physical self down, then I'm more apt to then be able to, to logically think through something in terms of imposter syndrome or anything else and, you know, logically step through something. You know, if I'm breathing heavy and sweating and like freaking out, my heart's racing, like clearly I'm not going to be able to, to think clearly. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. it's a lame advice at all. I think it's a, it's a good <laughs> first step to take. Because sometimes sure. it's, it's, a, it's a very much a physical response too. It's not just that my brain is, is going, you know, a mile a minute. It's I'm also physically freaking out. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. When I feel imposter syndrome, the first thing that I feel is a shortness of breath. It's a form of anxiety. And so it makes sense that it manifests in the same way that uh, having a, a panic attack would start to, to manifest when you get this shortness of breath and this slight dissociation and all of the good parts of this anxiety syndrome. So I think it should be motivation to start acting on imposter syndrome before it gets to that point. At least for me, one of the ways to, to prevent feeling overwhelmed by it was to recognize the very early signs of imposter syndrome, sort of nagging sense of questioning at the back of my head. And learning how to take a step back from that was, was definitely useful to, to prevent going into full imposter syndrome mode. Just being attentive to the signs helped me quite a lot. Trying to recognize the very first the very first sign. There's a sort of a progression from when you start questioning yourself to when you, you're in a more like crisis mode and you're feeling the full effect of your imposter syndrome. And, and the sooner you realize that this is happening, the sooner you can uh, take a step back, do something else, and give yourself some time to process and, and prepare the fact that you, can, you need to confront this feeling uh, at some point. For me, it was about being attentive to the signals that I would need to confront this, this feeling of imposter syndrome in the short term. So the signals for you are like when you're starting to question a lot? Yeah. Now, one of the main signals for me would be uh, like an, an increase in the sense of insecurity regarding what I'm doing at the moment. And it's like decreasing confidence and my ability to do it. And when I when I start to feel that, I usually try to step back and reevaluate what I'm doing and what I can double check just to make sure that I can manage walking through the exercise. So I was thinking whether similarly to uh, Jamie was triggering some uh, physical anxiety and it does, but I think the way that it kind of like penalizes me the most is that become I become completely stuck with like any decision making. I'm just like into the thinking and and the, what if, what if, what if this happens and I don't belong and blah, blah, blah. And then I get totally stuck in the action. Like I'm not moving forward with anything. I'm just like, I, I, I switch from one task to the next without accomplishing anything. So it's, I have like a scattered brain. The best way sometimes to kind of like also get me back into action. And sometimes, I mean, thinking is good, right? When you're, I guess, when you guys are thinking about a protocol or reading papers, I mean, you're thinking, but I mean, when I'm thinking, but just like moving from one one task to the next and not getting somewhere with my thoughts. Um, I just try to take a step back and say like, well, maybe I don't belong, but what is the biggest thing that could happen? And I guess in my field, it really helps because, you know, like no life is at stake, right? So like if I make a mistake, like I'm not going to kill anyone. Yeah. <laughs> I, I may take, you know, a bad decision or may involve, you know, a lot of, it may involve some dollars being spent on the wrong thing, but it's not, I'm not going to kill anyone. And it's kind of like, 
kind of like thinking about the worst outcome that could happen and just thinking that it's not like threatening for me. It's just like a pause moment where I'm just like, all right, not that bad. (laughs) It's going to die with, you know, wrong decision. And it kind of helps me move forward. And I'm not sure it helps like all of the scientists in the world because I guess some people have like... Yeah, (laughs) I was just thinking about that for the medical doctors that this is not an advice for you. We actually have like a thing. Exactly. And I I don't know how they deal with it, right? So I, I can't provide any advice or anything like that. But for me, like kind of thinking about the worst outcome that could happen and just tell myself like, well, even if the worst outcome happens, it's not that bad. Like I'm still going to be breathing at the end of the day and it's going to be just fine. But it takes a lot of intentional thinking, right? Like imagining the worst case scenario and, you know, telling yourself it's not that bad. It takes it takes energy. And I guess when you're like just panicking, like have this shortness of breath, it's kind of like a hard step to take. I think I relate a little more to that feeling now, recognizing that you're starting to feel imposter syndrome. I think over my career, I think how I dealt with it at the beginning of grad school compared to how I deal with it now is very different. I think at least for me, and I'm sure a lot of people like with every advance you make professionally, I think it's very common to feel imposter syndrome. And I think the more steps you make and you keep advancing, the more you realize that yes, you're going to feel this way. It's okay. And you start to kind of like what Timothy was saying, acknowledge or, or see those signs ahead of time versus like when I first started grad school and I was feeling this, I did not handle it well. And I definitely had more of like the physical response. I mean, I still do sometimes, but it's not nearly like the same. So I think some of it is also just your experience and learning how to deal with it for, your, for yourself. Like I do not have imposter syndrome. I can, I'm good at imposter syndrome. I trained in it in a sense. <laughs> and so the more experience you have, then, then the, the better equipped you are to, to handle it over time. It's not necessarily a good thing again, but it's it, you live through a lot of small situations that, that results in you feeling like an imposter and then you, you adapt to them and that sort of give you a library of experiences that you can you can use to get a better control over it. Both of you guys and specifically Jamie, like you make a really great point about the differences between when you first started grad school as an early career scientist versus now. I just like don't want to toot my own horn and Laura's own horn, but I think that's like the purpose of this podcast. It's to give people that don't have necessarily the experience with dealing with imposter syndrome or dealing with all the things that we're going to be talking about, the tools to deal with them from other people's experiences. So this is actually an audience question provided to us from one of our listeners. Imposter syndrome is not a syndrome. It's not a medical condition. And even the person that made up the word imposter syndrome regrets calling it imposter syndrome. So we want to go around and ask you guys, what would you name your imposter syndrome instead? I think it's not uh, something that I'm going to invent or I'm not creative enough. Uh, I think it's more of a, like, I think a life coach term that they use. It's more like a self-limiting thought. And I think just naming it a self-limiting thought, it just like empowers you to take action on it. And, and I think it just, you know, brings it back to what it just is, which is, you know, not a medical condition. You can act on it. It's something that you do to yourself. Uh, so it's kind of like, it's more specific in terms of who can, you know, like whether you have anything in your power to act on it. And so I, I like the term of self-limiting thought. Well, that was better than what I came up with. Um, <laughs> this is not the competition guy. syndrome. Oh, no, I'm not <laughs> syndrome. No. Um, <laughs> I think maybe calling it a, a doubting phenomena, because it really is like, like you said, self-limiting or it's self-inflicted, right? So it could be like self-doubt phenomena, self-doubt 
moment like i don't know this is a hard question it is and i I disagree with it a little bit just because a syndrome in medicine is is actually an appropriation of the broader meaning of of the term and a syndrome is just a a series of concurrent things that tend to be identifiable in the same circumstances in ecology we talk a lot about pollination syndromes which is that plants that are pollinated by the same insects tend to have a set of traits so i would would keep the name imposter syndrome because it's a a series of feelings that emerge in response to some common situations in academia and and i think it makes sense it's not it's not a disease but it's a series of feelings that we feel in, in response to some some situation one thing that i would not be comfortable with is say that it's necessarily self-limiting or self-inflicted because i'm not sure that it is self-inflicted i would not blame the people for imposter syndrome in, in my mind it's largely a manifestation of the academic system as it exists where we have a cult of performance and productivity and this idea that we should all be uh, brilliant and externally secure at all times and that we we feel like there's this reality that we can just live up to and i i, I don't think it's self-inflicted i think it's it's a manifestation of the, the academic system that we built over time more than a manifestation of the individual that are working within the system well, and i think that's super interesting because i think it kind of like reflects the mental models that we have right you know life coaching and basically they really empower you on the kind of thoughts that you can have you can analyze throughout those phases and kind of like understand how your like self mechanisms like self thinking mechanisms work and how you can get out of those patterns of reaction if the outcome in that situation is not corresponding to what you would like the situation to be I think in terms of like the patterns in reactions I think they when you do life coaching it's really putting a lot of emphasis on the things that you could try to control and I think the general I think and I would say the kind of like the French mindset has a lot of like determinism in how you think about things and, and you take the reality as, you know, everybody interprets the reality the same way. When I think, and I, and I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but I think in America, they make you believe that you can control yeah. your yeah. much <laughs> more and that you're a lot more in control. And I think life coaching is a lot more offended in the US and I think a lot more common than what you would find in France. I think you guys both bring up really interesting points, like the difference between the systemic nature of imposter syndrome and in that sense it could be called imposter syndrome how it manifests um, not necessarily uniquely for every person who experiences it and then in the sense of how you experience it personally when I specifically experience imposter syndrome how am I going to respond to it so I think it's kind of a macro versus micro argument in this case and I think and I don't know if Tim are you using like the example of the bees or what was the example of the syndrome that was relevant yeah, pollination syndrome is just like all, all flowers that share a pollinators they tend to have the same traits, they look, they look the same. And I, and I think the big difference in like the American thinking and maybe some other like cultural thinking is more like, well, we're humans, we're not animals. And I think we have a lot more control over our thoughts. No, I mean, like, I don't mean, I don't mean to minimize like the technical approach to this, but I think it's like putting the human beings a lot more in control of their like own thinking mechanisms. Anyway, that's, I thought yeah. was. <laughs> no, but that's good because this platform is like for multicultural people. It's not just for American or just for like European. So that's good to like emphasize the different aspects of uh, how we will interpret situation and how we will take control or not over different things. Imposter syndrome to me, I think happens 
to a lot of people, not just scientists. But that aside, I do think imposter syndrome, I think, could be a little different in terms of how academics see it versus maybe how someone who's still a scientist, but maybe an industry might see it. I think in academia, kind of to what Timothy was saying, it's very competitive. And there's this perception of you're supposed to know everything and you're supposed to be the the leading expert and try to reach the top, right? And and be the leading person in your field. So there's a lot of pressure with that and a lot of conceptions within the science community of how you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to strive for. And so I think in academia, being more harsh is a a way to, to word it. But when I have friends or I think of myself who are in industry situations or, or team situations, it's a little different, right? Because you're, you, yes, you are comparing yourself amongst your immediate group and your coworkers, but not necessarily against an entire field. And I agree with like, so I think in the difference between academia and like the industry is like in academia, there are some like metrics that everybody can agree upon and like how you establish that you're the best. And I think in the industry, it's like a lot more tacit. And I think there is no such metric in terms of like how you compare across all of the different companies, for example. In academia, we have all of the age indexes and all of the education stuff. And you can compare your like number against someone else and the number of like, you know, publications and like your top papers or the first 10 papers. And so you have, it's so... it made it so easy to compare yourself to so many people that it's just like, you know, when you see all of those metrics, right? Like it's, it's, um, it's really hard to, I guess it's, it's so explicit that it, I think it's really hard to like ground yourself and say like, Oh, you know, like I could, you know, maybe I'm the best, but I just have, don't have like, you know, the highest index or whatever. Right. So <laughs> I guess this is contributing or like, you know, for example, grant, I know that some people just like sum up how many, how much money they have received for grants and, and blah, blah, blah. And so it's so easy to compare yourself because of all of those like explicit metrics. Everyone at some point in their career. Absolutely. Super friend imposter syndrome so you you never you're never alone in questioning yourself and and everyone is going through that uh we can be very open about it or we can try to to never mention it but it's it's pretty much universal and it's a normal part of of academia and there's no there should be no feeling of shame in uh in experiencing imposter syndrome at any point thank you all for being here and advocating for pretty much all students period because everyone (laughs) encounters imposter syndrome so thank you for being here to do that for them and us thank you Bye. bye bye bye